Hello, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm a senior pastor here at Centerpoint. I want to welcome those folks who are watching with us via video at Pike Road and Cloverdale. And I'm, I hope everybody has a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Um, today, we are wrapping up our series on heaven. There's more to be said than what we've covered, but we've covered a number of questions every Sunday during the month of May, and today is no exception. Uh, we're going to tackle the question today, who is going to heaven? That's kind of an important question when we talk about heaven. And so we're going to answer that one today. <clears throat> I do realize, as I said a minute ago, that there are a, a lot, there's a lot more to be said, but um, we're just going to stick around. And so if we need to do another series on heaven again soon and cover more questions, we will. But today I want to talk about this very important topic. And fortunately for us, Jesus talked a lot about this, about how to have eternal life and have eternal life with him. In fact, he told a story once, a parable that illustrated who's going to heaven that gives us some very good insights and hopefully some good application to our lives. I'd like to have a word of prayer with you and then jump right in. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you for your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And God, I pray that today you will guide our thoughts as we talk about who's going to heaven. I pray that you'll speak and move me out of the way. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. If you need a pen, by the way, to take some notes or fill in the blanks, just raise your hand. One of the ushers coming up in the aisles will be glad to pass a pen to you. Five things I want to say in response to the question of who's going to heaven. Number one is this. God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to save us from sin and death and make it possible for us to live forever with him in heaven. That's the gospel, as succinctly as I can say it. Uh, in fact, John three sixteen and 17 are kind of the key verses. I just summarized what's in those two verses. I'll read them in a second. So when you see an NFL playoff game or something like this, and there's a guy in a rainbow wig holding up a sign with John three sixteen, or when if you remember when Tim Tebow was playing, he always, in the eye black, he'd write John three sixteen. Well, people get and Google it, and they'd go, what is John three sixteen? Well, he wanted them to read the verses I'm reading to you now. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the idea of Jesus came to save us. He was on a rescue mission. We're a bunch of sinners deserving punishment, deserving death, deserving hell. And God sent his son into the world to rescue us, to save us. That's the good news. And that's, why, that's what the word gospel means. This is good news. So who's going to heaven? Those who believe in Jesus, according to Jesus himself. That was Jesus speaking in John three sixteen and 17. So those who believe in him. But there's more. And that brings us to point two. Sadly, many religious people, or you could put many people who grew up in a religious home, if that helps you understand it better, will reject God's invitation of eternal life through Christ because they're more concerned with the affairs of this life. They're not worried about eternal life. They're worried about here and now. And they don't have time to think about heaven, and they don't have time for a relationship with Jesus. They want to run their own lives. Jesus was very strong on this topic. In fact, today I'm going to share with you a story that's related to us twice in Luke 14 and in Matthew 22, and it's a parable of a wedding banquet <clears throat> and of a great feast where we know Jesus told the story at least twice, and both times he was sharing this story with people who thought they were good enough to earn heaven on their own. They were called Pharisees and teachers of the religious law. All throughout the Old Testament, God had given commands to his people. Uh, he had given them instructions on how to worship him, how to atone for their sins when they blew it. And there were many people 
who responded the right way. And they came to God and offered sacrifices and prayers humbly. But there were others who then figured out, well, hey, if I can come to God and offer sacrifices for forgiveness of sin, and if I obey these laws then, and try to be as righteous as I can, well, the name of the game is to be more righteous than you. So there were people like these Pharisees who set out to be the ultimate rule keepers. Think hall monitor on steroids, okay? These were people who wanted to make sure they were doing everything exactly right. And if they obeyed the Old Testament laws better than you, that meant they were more righteous than you, that they'd have better rewards in heaven. And they were sure they were going to heaven. Even though their motivation wasn't to love God and to get right with God about their sins, their motivation was just to prove they were more righteous than you and me. Well, Jesus didn't buy into that at all. And so when he talked to them, they were all confident they were going to heaven. If anybody was going to heaven, they were, because they deserved it more than the rest of us. And Jesus didn't talk that way. And so I'm going to share with you a story that he shared with these religious leaders at least twice. And uh, in Luke's account, he was at the home of a Pharisee, one of these religious guys. The guy had invited him over for dinner because Jesus was doing all these miracles and he had invited all of his friends and Jesus was kind of the talk of the town. So he wanted to really impress his friends. So they sit down at this big banquet at the guy's house. And what's interesting is, is that Jesus notices everybody jockeying for position to sit next to the host or sit next to him to be as important as possible. So after the meal gets started, he says, yeah, hey guys, I noticed when we were coming in here, you all were fighting for the best place. You shouldn't do that. In fact, you should sit at the end of the table and then If the host recognizes that you're at a place that's too far away, he'll publicly promote you and bring you up front. Otherwise, if somebody more important than you comes in, he'll tell you to go sit down at the end and then you'll be disgraced. Continue on with your salad, okay? I mean, can you imagine somebody at your house just doing that? I mean, the conversation just stops. Okay, because these guys were all into position and proving they were important. So the meal gets started again and Jesus suddenly pipes up and goes, and by the way, I've noticed that you invite each other to these fancy meals and all this, and that's good, but why don't you invite poor people who can never afford to come to a meal like this? Then you'll be honored by your Father in heaven. Continue on with your salad. (laughs) Silence. I mean, awkward pause after awkward pause. And finally, somebody stands up and he goes, well, but Lord, don't you agree that one day it's going to be great when we're all feasting together with Abraham up in heaven? We're all going to be at the big heavenly banquet. And Jesus goes, yeah, about that. Not as many people, not as many of you are going as you think are going. Now let's jump into the story. That was in Luke 14. In Matthew 22, he was telling the same thing out in the temple area in public. And the people were shocked that he would talk to them this way. But here's what Jesus said about who's going to heaven. Kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. This is in the days before Twitter, okay? You actually had to send someone to somebody's house. Sounds exhausting, okay? But they they couldn't just tweet about it. You had to actually send a servant to somebody's house. Now, what you need to know, there were a series of invitations. The first invitation would have gone out weeks before. Let them know a wedding was going to happen on a certain day. But because there was no refrigeration and animals had to be slaughtered for a barbecue and things like this, you wouldn't know exactly what time it started until the animals had been slaughtered and everything had been ready. So when the king got everything ready, he sent out the servants for the second round and told them, okay, everything's ready. I mean, the meat's on the grill. Let's go. 
You just knew they'd be coming, and so now it was time to go. So when the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. I mean, this is unthinkable. First of all, this guy's a king. It is unwise to tell the king, no, your majesty, okay? That would be stupid, a bad thing to do, because the king's the king. But um, it gets even worse. So, but they refused to come. So the king, being gracious, sent other servants to tell them. I mean, he didn't have to do that, but he sent even more. The feast has been prepared. The bulls and the fattened calves have been killed. Everything's ready. It's on the grill now. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went on their own way, one to his farm, another to his business. Others seized his messengers, insulted them, and killed them. And the king was furious, and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. And of course, the Pharisees knew that he was talking about the Hebrew people, who'd been warned by Moses, who'd been warned by prophets like Elijah, who had clearly understood by following the example of David and others what following God was supposed to be all about, but they weren't interested. They'd even known there were prophecies that a Messiah was coming, yet here Jesus was in their midst. He, blind people could see, lame people could walk. It was clear he was able to do extraordinary miracles, and they wouldn't put their faith in him. And so here he was inviting them to come to be a part of what God was doing. And just like the people in the parable, they said, no, I got better things to do. It's important to note here, God invites us to follow him today and not make excuses. Not make excuses. Well, John, what do you mean by an excuse? Well, here's a great definition of an excuse. If you take your outline, flip it over on the back side under question three. Or, yeah, under the life application section, question three is discuss the following quotations. Uh, Billy Sunday, who was an evangelist, a pro baseball player turned evangelist, late 1800s, early 1900s. What's an excuse? A skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And that's just one of my favorite quotes about excuses. They said uh, Billy Sunday was like this fiery evangelist. And he hated excuses. You know what excuse is? It's a skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. I mean, this was just a lie. I mean, Luke expounds more in his account of this when the bank, about when the messengers went out to invite people. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant out to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready, but they all began making excuses. One said, I just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five pair of oxen. I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I now have a wife, so I can't come. Now, the wife's going to take some time. I'll give him that one, okay? But, but the rest of them here... Okay, but, the rest, but any of these, this is silly. I mean, you've been invited to this thing, you know. So now when there's this tremendous spread at the palace, a meal you're never going to be able to have on your own, and the king wants to bless you with it and share it with you, and you say, I got to go inspect a field? I mean, this is going to be towards evening when the banquet is. You're going to inspect the field at night? You're going to go plow the field in the dark with those oxen? What, you can't take your wife with you to the banquet? I mean, these are just excuses and pretty lame ones. And people ask me, well, John, I mean, do people make these excuses about following the Lord today? Oh, all the time. People will come to a message or they'll, people, somebody will hand them a CD of one of these messages or they'll watch online and they'll email me. I said, well, you need to get right with the Lord about some sin in their life or 
it's time to surrender control of their lives. And I go, yeah, about that. I just, you know, I, <coughs> I don't know if I'm ready. I mean, you know, my business is really at kind of a crucial point right now. Once I get it established, you know, then I'll get serious about God. Once my kids grow up, then I'll get serious about God. Once I get a little further on, I mean, you know, I know it's important here, but you know, I'm having a pretty good time right now, pretty good run of it. And I, I think I'm going to handle life on my own. I hear it all the time. There's an opportunity to come to Christ, an opportunity to say, Lord, I want what you've prepared for me because what I've prepared isn't enough. I'll never make this on my own. So here's a life application for all of us. In order to get to heaven, I must accept Jesus as my Lord. And you could put slash king. Jesus is my king. If the king says come, I come. He came into the very world he created. This is John 1, speaking of Jesus here, but the world didn't recognize him. Came to his own people and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him as king, he gave them the right to become children of God. Accepted him as their heavenly father, the one who gave them life, the one who has given us purpose and meaning, the one who can direct our lives and we can become his children. And so when Jesus is sitting among these Pharisees, these very religious types, Moses and all the other people in the Old Testament had sent out the first invitation. Now the second invitation was here by Jesus himself, and they wouldn't come. They had better things to do. They wanted to be rich. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be busy. And Jesus wanted them to be with him. There's a warning here. It's in the note in your outline. Our religious heritage isn't enough. God doesn't have grandchildren. The verse I just read to you was, those who believed in him and accepted him, to them he gave them the right to become children, not grandchildren. And just because I come from a Christian family who goes to heaven, well, that ought to count for something. My mom and dad were devout believers. Yeah, but what about you? My grandfather was a Methodist preacher, a Baptist evangelist. Good. What about you? John the Baptist, when he was warning people about Jesus coming, he met all kinds of people who came out to hear him preach and, uh, and saw him baptize people. And here's what he said about it. He said, prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. People in that day, just like people in this day. I can grow up in a Christian home. Yeah, I know there's a Bible, and we might even have copies of the Bible sitting around our house. Ten of them, the coffee table size. Bible's on the phone. Six different translations. You read any of them? No. Don't have time. Don't have time. Opportunities to go to church. We got options here, and then we Tumpka, and Cloverdale, all kinds of places. We're going to be working on a Saturday night option here too. Try to make it the church as open to people as we possibly can because I am so tired of people making excuses. I go to church, but I just can't go on Sunday morning. Great, we got a Saturday night service. Well, I can't go Saturday night. Great, we got a Sunday night at Cloverdale. Well, I, sorry, I live in Wetumpka. Great, we got a branch in Wetumpka. Well, I'm closer to Pike Road. Good, we're there too. But I don't want to come. I don't want to dress up. You can wear blue jeans. Well, I always need coffee. We got great coffee. I don't have a Bible. It's on the screen. 
I had a fellow once, he was talking to me, he goes, you're not going to give me any excuses at all. I go, I'm not. I'm not. We need to come to Jesus. You want to go to heaven? Who's going to heaven? People who put their faith in Jesus. Jesus is their Lord. And stop making excuses. Point three. Surprisingly, I mean, sadly, many religious people wouldn't, will reject God's invitation, but surprisingly, many sinners will accept the invitation. Because the story goes on. He said these people that had been originally invited, they all didn't have time to come, but there's all this meat on the barbecue. It's on the grill. What's the king going to do? Well, I'll tell you what he's going to do. He's going to have a feast whether those original set come or not. And so he'll go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And after the servant had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. So his master said, well, go out in the country lanes, behind the hedges, and urge anyone you find to come. So the house will be full. It's my party and I'll cry if I... No, I mean, it's my party and I'll fill this house if I want to. I mean, it's his party. And you know what? The Lord says, heaven is my home. And if the people who should have known better won't come and they're too caught up in this world, then I'm going to invite people that the religious types think would never get in. Because it's not their place anyway, it's mine. And that's why some of these same religious types had such an issue with who Jesus hung out with. You flip your outline over, there's a note that talks about this. <coughs> it's good news for us, though, because the Bible tells us that Jesus came to seek and save filthy, rotten sinners. And that's good news. Because they're not in short supply. There's lots of us. Matthew, who also went by the name of Levi, the guy who wrote the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, he held a banquet in his home with Jesus as his guest of honor. Many of Levi's fo- fellow tax collectors, that's what Matthew was before he became a disciple. He was a tax collector, a notorious sinner, a thief. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call those... I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And if you'd underline, need to repent. I don't want to say what some really foolish people are saying these days, that Jesus just calls people to come and doesn't care if we sin or not. No, he cares enough to die for our sin. He does indeed call us as sinners right where we are. And he calls us to repent. So let's make that clear too. It has to be understood, or else the cross means nothing. Why would he die on the cross if sins don't matter? He gave up his life to rescue us from sin. And so Jesus came to save, seek and save filthy, rotten sinners. This would have been incredible, again, to this original audience. They have been tithing down to their last tea leaf. They wash their hands only the prescribed way every meal. They dress exactly right. And they judge each other harshly. And here comes Jesus saying, God's going to open the door to heaven for people who will come and acknowledge they're sinners, not to people who are self-righteous and think they're good enough on their own merits. Wow. And again, I mean, after that, I don't know how many dinner invitations Jesus had. (laughs) That would have been awkward. Okay. Wow. 
I mean, everybody just stopping and staring at him. I can't believe you really said that. And Jesus just staring at them going, what? That's the way it is in heaven. And that brings us to point four. We will never get to heaven by trusting our own righteousness. So, who goes to heaven? The people who believe in Jesus. Many religious people will make excuses, won't come. Many sinners will come. But all of us, anybody who's getting in, will never get into heaven by trusting our own righteousness. The story has one final twist. So, the king invites all these people in from the highways and the byways. But this is a wedding feast. It's a black tie event. These people weren't planning to go to a black tie event. They may have been working in the field all day when, they got, when the messenger caught up with them behind the hedgerow. So they're sweaty and stinky, and they're invited to a wedding feast. And so the king opens up, the, gets the keys to the tuck shops and stuff, tells all the people who run the formal wear shops, hey, open it up. Any of my guests can go there. I'll just put it on my tab. So he calls all these perfect strangers in, some of them sm- smelling terrible and dirty and filthy and saying, hey, come to my banquet. Take a shower, shave, and go get a tux. It's on me. Food's on me. Banquet's on me. Tux is on me. And you go, how could it get better than this? I mean, how could it get any better than this? They weren't counting on anything, and now they're going to get everything. When the king came in, here's the twist, Matthew twenty-two eleven. 11. When the king came in to the party to see the guests, he noticed there was a man there who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how'd you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him out into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many many are invited and few are chosen. I've invited you to this feast that you didn't deserve. I'm paying for everything. It's my son's wedding. It's a black tie formal event. I've ordered all the tux shops to be open to measure you and give you a tux that fits you perfectly. And you won't come in. The guy's sitting there going, he can't say anything because he goes, I'm dressed well enough. Look, it was 95 or 96 yesterday. I was outside working in my yard for a few hours and I came in and I was ripe, okay? My wife does not hug me when I'm ripe, okay? She wants me to go shower and burn my clothing or at least go hang it outside. You reek. If I'd show up at a wedding reception dressed like that, or a couple asked me to perform a wedding, I'd spend all day out in the yard and just show up like this. I could sit down at the table. There wouldn't be anybody sitting next to me. I can guarantee you that. But the host would have every right, the person paying for the reception would have every right to come up to me and go, John, who do you think you are? We invited you here to be our guest. Why do you insult us by coming here filthy and dirty and stinking to high heaven? Especially if they had made arrangements for me to have a tux that they paid for. It would be unthinkable. The king says, throw him out. This is the person I was talking about who won't repent. Yeah, I want to go to heaven, but I ain't repenting. I'm living just the way I am. I'm fine. No, you're not, and neither am I. We stink to high heaven. Our sins are, make us filthy, and we need new clothes. If we're going to enter into heaven, we need robes of righteousness. Isaiah talked about this in Isaiah 61.10. I'm overwhelmed with, the joy, with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me in the clothing of salvation, draped me in a robe of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom in his wedding suit, his tux, or a bride with her jewels. 
When we baptize people here at Centerpoint, we have them wear a white robe when they get in the water. It shows on the outside what's happening on the inside, that their souls have been washed clean. It's a reminder of what Isaiah wrote about here, that this is like a a robe of righteousness. And as we put on this white robe, it covers covers us completely. Well, it would if it was a little bigger. I'm kind of a 2X guy, and these sleeves are a little short. Okay, anyway, you get the idea. But the idea behind the robe is to remind us that our sins have been washed away. This is what I look like on my own. But through Jesus, my sins can be forgiven and washed away. If that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? Amen. That's why we wear the white robes. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Another place in scripture, I could have listed three or four more places here. In heaven, a couple places in Revelation where it's talking about how we're wearing white robes. Sparkling white robes. Righteousness. Joshua was a priest. Zechariah saw a vision about him. Recorded this in Zechariah 3. Joshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angels. So the angel said to the other standing there, take off his filthy clothes. Turning to Yeshua, he said, see, I've taken away your sins and now I'm giving you these fine new clothes. Come to the banquet. But you got to get rid of your sin and your filth. This is what it means by repentance. Take off the filthy old clothes. Dirty. Smelly. Wrong. And put on the new clothes of righteousness. Offered free without charge. Come and be a part of the banquet. Life application for you and me out of all this is in order to get to heaven, to go to heaven... I must accept Jesus as my Savior. I need to accept him as my Lord. If he bids me to come, I need to come. I need to accept him as my Savior because I can't save myself. One more time here. This is me. My filthy, my most righteous deeds are filthy rags. But I'm covered over with robes of righteousness that Jesus gives to me. He paid the penalty for my sins. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says at just the right time, I heard you on the day of salvation. I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Please circle the word now. Today is the day of salvation. Note, this is urgent. Look, Billy Sunday loved it when he could go around. The guy who had that marvelous quote about excuses, he loved it when he could go to a town. He was convinced that every time he told people about Jesus, God had already set up people to be there who needed to hear the news that their sins could be forgiven. He was convinced of it. I'm convinced that some of you here today need to be reminded of this. Some of you need to hear this for the first time. And if this is the day that God has ordained for you, then today is the day of your salvation. Come to Christ. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? John, do people wait? I told you before, they wait all the time. And sometimes I meet people 20 years later. Yeah, I'll I'll get right with God later. I'll get right with God later. And then life gets them so busy that by the time they're 40, 50, 60 years old, they won't even listen anymore. They're done. 
Other people, yeah, I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to get right with God. And then they wake up on a Tuesday and there is no Wednesday. They didn't wake up Tuesday morning going, hey, today at 1145, I'm going to have a car wreck. They didn't wake up on a Thursday. Hey, today I'm going to find out I have terminal cancer. I hope I do. Nobody does that. And yet many of us spend all our time worrying about the things of this life. Even though God has laid out before us an invitation, come now, repent of your sins, come to me. In order to go to heaven, I have to accept Jesus as my Savior. In order to go to heaven, I have to accept Jesus as my Lord. And that brings us to point five. Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. You can't get in on your own righteousness. He was telling this to people who were convinced they could. You can't get in on grandpa's good name. He was talking to people who were convinced they could. You can't get in because you think you're better than somebody else. We're all like this. And the only hope is if somebody pays the penalty for us. Peter, John were stood in front of the very people who had crucified Jesus. They were ordered to never speak again in the name of Jesus. And here's what they said, Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. God's given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our King. Jesus is the one who can make us clean. A couple of life applications very quickly. Followers of Christ then don't need to worry about whether or not they're going to heaven. Why do I know if I'm going to heaven? Well, have you confessed your sins to Christ? Have you surrendered control of your life to him? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Then don't worry about it. Well, John, how do you, how do you know that? Well, the same guy who recorded John 3.16 also recorded this in 1 John 5. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son, God's Son, does not have life. I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. How do I know if I'm going to heaven? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you surrendered to him as your Lord? Have you confessed your sins to him and allowed him to save you? Have you are you experiencing him change you from the inside out? Are you seeking to obey him and honor him and live in love with his other followers? Yeah, well then, don't worry about that. Another life application is this. There's still time to repent and come to Jesus. If you came here this morning and weren't planning on coming to a meeting where they were going to offer you a chance to repent, I'm offering you a chance to repent. I'm also here to remind all of us that if we have a cousin or a brother or a son or a daughter or someone who, a neighbor or a friend or a coworker, someone who is far away from God, there's still time. In that parable, the messengers were sent out multiple times. Until it was too late. Jesus has not yet returned. And if you and I have a friend who has not yet breathed their last, it's not too late. And we can pray that God will send a messenger out to them. We can pray one more thing, that God might even allow us to be a messenger for somebody else. And we are going to pray that right now. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you that you've covered us over in robes of righteousness Lord, that we don't have to depend on our own good works because none of us could stand before you. 
Lord, you have children, not grandchildren, and we don't need to mess around with that. We all know that's true anyway. Lord, we have to make our own decisions ourselves. And Lord, you want a personal relationship with us. So Lord, forgive us for making excuses for not following you. Forgive us, Lord, for times when our hearts are stubborn and wicked and wrong. And we thank you for Jesus. In a moment of silence, if the Lord has spoken to you about something today, if you have come here today and he is asking you to repent of your sins and come to him, then take a moment right now and say, oh God, I give my heart to you. I'm a sinner and you know it. And Lord, I've run my own life and I'm running to the ground and I'm sorry, I'm wrong. If you pray to him, he'll hear you. Lord, for many of us, we have followed you for a long time, but we get lazy and we get distracted. And Father, we even stop praying for our friends and relatives and neighbors who don't know you. God, forgive us for our laziness. In a moment of silence right now, if that's you, would you pray for one person by, by name right now, somebody you know is far away from God. They've even told you lately they're miserable. They don't know what the meaning of life is and they don't know where they're going. And they're afraid of death. They're afraid of life. They don't know how to live and they're into sin by their own admission. So you're not judging them. If you know someone like this, and many of us do, pray for them by name. That's not judging, that's concern. Oh God, there's still today. You haven't returned yet. We're still alive. We still draw breath yet today. And so, God, I pray that we will make the most of today. Lord, if we need to come to you today, I pray that you will lead us to come. If we need to share the good news with someone else today, I pray that we will do so. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus, the one who told us this, this wonderful parable, is all.